Hi everyone, welcome back to Ortho Radio. I'm your host, Nick Bertha. I'm one of the third-year residents here at Penn State Hershey Medical Center. And today I'm excited to present the first of our podcast in our Fracture series. In the Fracture series here, the goal of this is that I'd like to discuss some of the more commonly seen fractures, particularly ones that we see often in the emergency department, and provide some additional background information about the diagnosis and the treatment of these fractures and how we decide what the best management is going to be for your fracture at that time. So today, I wanted to start with proximal humerus fractures. These are a really, really common fracture that we see in the emergency department and represent up to about 5% of total fractures. So this is a really, really common fracture that we see. It often happens when patients have things like falls from standing. It's really common as patients, uh, particularly as they get older, bones are not as strong as they were before and they fall down onto their side and they sustain the proximal humerus fracture or the fracture about the shoulder. It can happen in younger patients as well. That's also pretty common. However, it's typically more of a higher energy mechanism. Things like a motor vehicle collision or a motorcycle accident can cause a proximal humerus fracture. And then there's kind of some mechanisms that are kind of in between that can cause these kind of fractures. You see patients falling off a horse or falling off a ladder, things like that, that you're falling from a height and you're landing on this. And that can definitely cause this kind of uh, fracture. But I think one of the most important things to note is that these fractures are really common as patients get older. It's not quite as common in the younger population. And the reason for that is is that when we get older, we tend to lose some of our bone health and our bones tend to become more osteoporotic. And because they're not as strong as they were before, they're at a higher chance of fracture. And we call a fracture like this a fragility fracture in the elderly population. And this is because if someone that was in their 20s fell like this from standing height, they probably shouldn't get a fracture. But you see many people when they're older fall and have this kind of fracture, and that's just because the bone is weakened at that point. This is why we really kind of stress bone health and bone maintenance to patients and taking supplementation like vitamin D. Things like this can be really important to help prevent these kind of fractures from occurring in the future. While the proximal humerus fractures are very common in isolation, they can occur with other injuries as well. It's not uncommon to see patients fall and also sustain things like a hip fracture or a fracture at the wrist or just a radius fracture, particularly in elderly patients. There are, at a much lower rate, there are injuries uh, like nerve injuries or arterial injuries that can occur. This is more common when you have a fracture with an associated dislocation of your shoulder joint or your glenohumeral joint. The most commonly affected nerve is typically the axillary nerve, and that can affect your deltoid muscle. Uh, So while these are really, really uncommon, it is a really severe injury that we want to keep an eye out for and make sure that if we do see this, it's something that we're addressing. Same thing as as if it's a fracture dislocation. If we find that not only is your shoulder fractured, but it's also dislocated, that's something that we want to get back in place sooner than later. One of the other things that has a high prevalence in proximal humerus fractures is rotator cuff tears. Now, there have been studies that have looked intraoperatively 
when proximal humerus fractures are fixed to see whether or not a rotator cuff tear is present. And the rate of this is relatively high, a little bit less than 10%. However, it doesn't necessarily mean that the rotator cuff injury happened at the time of the injury of the proximal humerus. It's very possible that you could have had a rotator cuff tear before you even fell and falling either exacerbated that or possibly did nothing and you just had that kind of tear. It is possible that the trauma that you sustained in the incident could also lead to a tear of your rotator cuff muscle. Unfortunately, it's really hard to test your rotator cuff muscle at the time of the fracture as you're not going to be able to lift that shoulder because it's going to be so painful for you. So it's something that even if it is torn, it'd be, we'd have to really either address it during the surgery, um, if we were doing the surgery, or at a later time if we decided to treat the fracture non-operatively. So when you first come into the hospital, some of the first things that are going to be done is one of the physicians is going to talk with you and figure out the story and make sure that you don't have any sort of injury to your nerves or your blood vessels. They're going to test and make sure that you have good blood flow to your hand. As I said, the axillary nerve is the most commonly affected nerve injury that happens with a proximal humerus fracture. And one of the best ways to test that is to have the patient try to elbow the bed behind them uh, to make sure that the posterior deltoid is firing. So that gives us some information to make sure that everything is functioning the way that it should. One of the things that is seen sometimes at the time of the injury or a few days afterwards is a very extensive amount of bruising that can happen. I have seen patients that have come to the emergency department that have bruising that is going down the entire arm, and it looks really, really impressive, and it's really, really huge, but it's not an indication that your fracture is a really, really bad fracture or that you know we need to do something about the bruising. Sometimes, really what happens is that you, when you have the fracture, you get bleeding from the bone, and that blood starts to follow gravity and gets pulled down your arm, and then your body starts breaking down that blood products, and it's what causes all that bruising that occurs in your arm. So it is something that we do see sometimes and to keep an eye out for, but it's not necessarily a bad prognostic factor. So after we've got our exam and are concerned that you have a fracture, the next thing that we would do is obtain x-rays. So when we get the x-rays, it's really important to get a couple different views so that we make sure we have a better understanding of what is happening at the actual fracture. So we typically will get an A to P view or a Gracie view or both, which is kind of the x-ray coming directly at the shoulder. And then it's also really important to get an axillary lateral view as well. Unfortunately, this can be really uncomfortable for the patient because the technicians working in the radiology department typically have to kind of move your arm out to the side so that they can get this x-ray that goes up through your armpit, but allows us to see the actual glenohumeral joint and make sure that your shoulder is still reduced. Because if you had this fracture and it also dislocated and we didn't realize it dislocated, that could cause a lot of issues down the road. So we want to make sure that the fracture is indeed located in the joint and we can confirm that with this x-ray. Sometimes we also will get x-rays with the patient sitting up or standing up. And what this does is this allows gravity to pull down on the remainder of the arm. And by pulling down onto it, that allows uh, the bones to kind of follow with it 
if the bone is not falling with it, sometimes it can be trapped within the muscle. And that's something that we want to know if that bone has kind of punctured through the muscle and become incarcerated in the muscle. When we look at the x-rays, the classic classification system that we've used in the past was originally described by Dr. Charles Neer, and it's called the parts classification. And what this really is, is it describes the fragments that have occurred in the fracture. So typically there's a humeral head fragment or an articular surface fragment. There's the lesser and greater tuberosities. And these are kind of the areas of the bone that attach the rotator cuff muscles. And then there's the humeral shaft. There have been previous descriptions for proximal humerus fractures that make an analogy to Legos that I think describes what is kind of going on with this pretty well. So if you imagine you had a stack of Legos and you had one on the top and then two underneath that and then one on the very bottom, those Legos would represent the four parts that can occur in this fracture. The top part being the articular surface, the two middle parts being the lesser and greater tuberosity, and the bottom part being the humeral shaft fragment. In order for it to technically classify as a part, we look for displacement of those fragments. And if they're more than one centimeter displaced, in terms of the greater tuberosity, greater than a half a centimeter displacement, then we consider that a part. And the reason that we look at this is because it helps guide our treatment and to how severe the fracture actually is. When we look at what treatment we want to do for a proximal humerus fracture, there's a lot of factors that play a role. I think it's important to really note that this is a fracture that is very patient-specific. We need to ask you a lot of questions and make sure that we have a good understanding of what the patient's functional capacity is. So as I already mentioned, one of the factors that plays a role into whether or not we would try to treat the fracture non-operatively versus operatively is the type of fracture that it is. Is it a four-part fracture? Is it just a two-part fracture being the surgical neck? and then just having just a shaft fragment, or is there involvement of the tuberosities? And then from there, the other things that play a big role is to how old is the patient and what is their functional status? So I think the best example for this is given kind of the two extremes of the scenario. Imagine you had a 90-year-old that was wheelchair bound, and they only used their arm really just for some kind of simple... Uh, activities of daily living, and that was pretty much it, as, com as opposed to a 50-year-old who is a manual laborer who is using their arm for their livelihood, and they need to be able to get back and use this arm as best as they can. These are going to be kind of two different groups that need to be treated different ways. And now with any of these, while these are the two extremes, there's a whole area in the middle that kind of creates a gray zone and Everyone else kind of fits into those gray zone areas, and we have to figure out, is it going to be better to treat this non-operatively or treat it operatively? As far as the treatment options go, the non-operative treatment typically involves placing the patient into a sling and giving some time for them to rest. We'll talk a little bit more about the nuances of the non-operative treatment here shortly. Other options include doing things like uh, percutaneous pinning, or placing an X-fix, which is putting on some pins that go into the arm and then some bars externally 
uh, outside the body that kind of hold the fracture in place. Now, while the pins and the X-fix are not something that are commonly done in the United States anymore, it is something that is still relatively common in other areas of the world. So it is something that uh, you can see for these kind of fractures. However, the mainstay of treatment for these surgically is doing more open reduction and internal fixation, most commonly with plates and screws, although you can fix some fractures uh, with what we call a nail. We'll talk a little bit more about those. And then there's also shoulder arthroplasty, where we essentially do a replacement of where the area is that's fractured. And we can either do this being a total shoulder or an anatomic total shoulder or a reverse total shoulder. Most surgeons today would be preferential to do a reverse total shoulder. And I, I think that's what you're going to see in a vast majority of patients uh, that do undergo an arthroplasty procedure. So I want to go back. I want to talk a little bit about kind of the non-operative treatment and what to expect when we treat these fractures non-operatively. So as I said, the first thing we do is we put you in a sling and this allows you to give some time for the arm to get some rest. So in this phase, you kind of call it the pain control phase. And I think you can think of these treatments in kind of three different phases. And everyone's going to have a different variant of this, depending on who you see. But kind of in general, these are kind of the phases uh, that we think about when we're talking about healing for a proximal humerus fracture. So this first phase is kind of just allowing time for pain control. You're not doing a lot with the arm. The only thing we have you do with the shoulder is occasionally come out of the sling so that you can do what we call pendulum exercises, which is kind of when you let the arm out to the side and just let gravity help you kind of rotate the arm in small circles so that you can try to keep the shoulder as mobile as possible without any, doing any sort of active activity. And then you're able to do anything uh, that you want with your elbow, wrist, and hand. We don't limit what you can do with that per se. You can't bear weight through your arm because of the fracture, but you can do activities with your hands and you can move your hands and everything so that those don't get stiff as well. Usually this phase goes for about four weeks, at which time we kind of transition into the move phase. And we typically think about this being from about the four-week period to about the eight-week period. The goal of this period is to start to move the shoulder and reduce some of the stiffness that has kind of occurred because of the first part of the treatment. We need to get the pain under control in the first couple weeks so that you're able to start moving it. But at this point, we really want to kind of start to get you doing a little bit of more activity. You're also getting to the point where the bones are starting to heal up a little bit more. The bones take about six to eight weeks typically for them to heal. So you're kind of getting to a point where things are a little bit more robust. Now, sometimes the fractures don't heal in that six to eight week time frame. And that's when we talk about uh, having to either wait longer or consider doing other things. But that's kind of on a patient by patient basis. So we won't really get into that for now. After about the two-month time frame, that's when we kind of change to the kind of function phase. And at this point, the fracture really should be healed, and we can really kind of start pushing and getting you doing more with the arm. And we really want to start increasing your range of motion, and we want to eventually start doing some strengthening again for your shoulder to get it back to where it was. It's important when we talk about non-operative treatment to realize that it's not that we think non-operative treatment is necessarily inferior to treating something surgically. It's just the nature of this area of the body has a great healing potential. 
uh, and it allows the bone to remodel there and heal very, very well. And not only that, but the shoulder has a really large range of motion. And after these fractures have healed, we do expect most patients, if it heals well, to be able to get back and be able to do a very large portion of their range of motion just fine. And they avoid all the risk associated with surgery. So patients can do very, very well from this. So don't think that just because we're going to treat this non-operatively that it's not a good way to treat it. Uh, it's a great way to treat it. And, and honestly, a... a very large majority of these are treated non-operatively because they all do so well. Uh, in terms of some of the operative procedures, the first one I want to kind of discuss here is what we call the open reduction and internal fixation. Typically, we're going to do this with plates and screws. So we make an incision by your shoulder that allows us to get down and expose the proximal humerus. And once we're there, we can reduce the bones back to the alignment that we're happy with and make sure that things are well aligned and then we can put the plate on and put the screws in to hold the bone in place. And this allows us to get a more anatomic reduction and get things back to kind of where they were before. But the caveat to all of this is that after we fix it, the bone still needs time to heal. It's still gonna take six to eight weeks for the bone to heal and you're not gonna be bearing weight through the arm but it will hopefully heal into a position that is going to be more ideal and allow for better functional usage later, especially for those uh, that are very highly functional with it, like a manual labor that's young. As I said, you can use uh, a nail for some of these fractures. Typically what we do is we make an incision at the top of the shoulder and we can put the nail kind of right down through the middle of the humerus to create fixation for the fracture. However, this can only be done for fractures that are just at the surgical neck, creating just a piece of the proximal humerus and the humeral shaft itself. It won't address any of the other pieces and parts of these fractures. When we, if we do perform surgery on the proximal humerus fracture, we can also fix down the greater and lesser tuberosities as well. And this is important because these are the pieces that have those rotator cuff muscles attached to them, and we can get them back down into a position that will allow them to uh, functionally be used as best as possible. So that is another consideration for why we would do surgery versus treat non-surgically. If you have those tuberosity fractures, we may need to get them in a better spot to allow your rotator cuff to function better. One of the other big treatments that we do is doing arthroplasty for proximal humerus fractures. The caveat with the arthroplasty is twofold. You can do these at an early time frame, meaning you can do this acutely within you know one to two weeks of the actual injury, or you can do this later uh, after the fracture is actually totally healed from a non-operative treatment time course. Uh, and then if the patient's not doing well, you can perform the arthroplasty to see if they can get some better function and pain relief back after that. So you don't lose anything for someone who is very low functionally demanding that you try to treat non-operatively because you can always resort and go back to the arthroplasty option if you need to. I think it's important to note as well that when we talk about these fractures, Typically, these are not a fracture that we necessarily need to do something emergently for, meaning we don't necessarily, if we do decide we're going to do surgery, it doesn't need to be done that day or even the next day. It's something that we can do within a week or two. The only times that we talk about 
trying to do something emergently is if you have a dislocation that's associated with a fracture and that we're not able to get that piece reduced, or if there's an associated nerve injury or vascular injury and we think that that's being caused by the uh, fracture itself and we need to get things back in place to prevent those injuries from worsening. So when we do the arthroplasty, this is typically the reverse total shoulder arthroplasty. Again, after the surgery, it still requires a time period where you're not bearing weight through this arm. Uh, and that's to allow kind of the bones to heal and to allow the arthroplasty to kind of ingrow into the bone and provide it more stability. The caveat with the arthroplasty is that while, like all the other methods, you are limited initially for your weight-bearing status, even after things have totally healed, there's still going to be a weight-bearing restriction, and we're not going to be able to allow you to have a large amount that you can lift with this arm because it could lead to a dislocation of the arthroplasty components. So you're able to use it again functionally to do all the activities that you may have been having difficulty doing before and hopefully you can get back the range of motion that we want you to. And you'll be able to lift some, but we often put a, a limit onto how much you can lift. But again, overall, as far as pain management goes and getting back to activities of daily living, patients do very well from having arthroplasties performed. As I said, there's a lot of different options that go into this. There's a lot of factors that go into the decision-making and we really want to cater it to the patient and see what that patient has for fracture-wise, how old they are, what kind of functional capacity they have to help us determine what we're going to do to try to treat these fractures. I hope that this provides you a little bit more information about the factors that go into the decision-making for proximal humerus fractures and that it kind of opens uh, your eyes to some of the post-operative care that happens for these as well and what things will look like moving forward once you've sustained this fracture. That's a wrap for our first of the Fracture Series podcasts. I hope you enjoyed listening, and I hope you learned a little bit more about proximal humerus fractures. As always, please feel free to email us at orthoradio.nick at gmail.com, and uh, I hope you keep listening. We really appreciate your support. Thank you.